0: Fifteen years ago this week, Google had its IPO, Initial Public Offering. That means shares of its stock were available to buy for the first time. I was working as a tech reporter in Silicon Valley at the time, and remember, it was a big deal for a couple of reasons. One, Google's IPO was a glimmer of hope after the dot-com bust. Two, Google was trying to reinvent the IPO by making it more transparent. They used a process called a Dutch auction. Well, today, the IPO hasn't changed for the most part, but maybe it's about to. Prominent venture capitalist Michael Moritz of Sequoia Capital wrote an op-ed this week arguing that Slack and Spotify are leading the way to a better day where Wall Street fat cats won't control and mystify the process of going public. But what would that mean for mom-and-pop investors, and what would it mean for startup employees who are just looking to make good after a lot of hard work? Welcome to Fort Knox, Rich Ideas and Powerful People. I'm John Fort from CNBC here at the NASDAQ market site overlooking Times Square. This week, to talk the future of the IPO, I've got Mr. IPO, Jay Ritter, University of Florida Cordell Professor of Finance. Also joining me later on here at the NASDAQ, I've got Kevin Delaney, Quartz Editor-in-Chief, and from San Francisco, Connie Loizos, TechCrunch, Silicon Valley Editor, and my former colleague at a certain newspaper in Silicon Valley. Uh, Jay, I wanna start off with you. Um, We're gonna go really deep here, I hope, on IPOs, but let's start off with the basics. What's an IPO for?
1: Uh, An IPO occurs when a company sells securities to the public for the first time. It could be a bond offering or an equity offering. But normally when people talk about IPOs, they're talking about a a stock offering.
0: Yeah, and a lot of companies want to make some money, want to
1: get some cash in that process, but not everybody, right? Uh, Right. Uh, The vast majority of IPOs, the company raises some money. Uh, Sometimes existing shareholders sell some stock as well. And uh, occasionally, as with Spotify and Slack, the company didn't raise any money at all. They just uh, started trading and uh, existing shareholders sold some of their shares. And this is a big deal, right? Because the founders have
0: been presumably in a lot of cases, kind of scrimping by for a long time, working hard, hoping this thing will get big. They had early investors who took a big risk. Most of these things just blow up, but maybe occasionally there's that one or two that'll actually become big companies. And then there are the employees who joined this thing early on. Maybe they could have gone to an established outfit, but they went to a startup hoping for this day when they'd be able to sell their stake in the company, or at least part of it, to someone else, right? So how
1: does Does this moment work now? Does it work well? Uh, It works imperfectly. Uh, There are a lot of room for improvement. Uh, A typical IPO, the lower-level employees are not selling any shares. Uh, And then uh, typically 180 days later, about six months, uh, there's uh, the end of the lockup period. Uh, If they didn't sell in the IPO. Their shares are locked up until that lockup ends. And then they can sell as many shares in the open market as they would like to. And the purpose of this lockup is, correct me
0: where I'm wrong here, um, normally in the traditional IPO process, um, the the banks come in, and they create new shares of the company, and then they offer those to the public. And they want to keep things stable, so they can't have all the existing shareholder base just selling, or it's not really a good price environment for everybody else. So they say, okay, everybody hold off for half a year. Everybody who's already got stock, hold off for half
1: a year on selling while we create this new stock and offer it to the public, right? That's part of the reason. The the other reason is if uh, individuals, including executives, could sell stock right away, they'd have an incentive to mislead the public in the offering document, uh, paint too rosy a picture, and then dump their shares as soon as they could before any bad news came out. All right, so tell us about the direct listing, because it works different. We've seen Slack do
0: this, I believe Spotify, and there's no lockup there. Does that mean that that we can't trust what they say
1: in their documents? Uh, No. The uh, documents uh, do have to be approved by the Securities and Exchange Commission where they're looking for accuracy. Uh, The SEC uh, does not take any position on whether they think the stock is priced too high or, or too low. Uh, government bureaucrats have decided uh, we're not going to do that, um, but uh, with uh, Spotify and Slack and their direct listings, uh, a lot of employees uh, wanted to diversify some of their holdings. A lot of them had a lot of eggs in one basket, and also some of them wanted cash to, for instance, buy a house. Mm, yeah. So part, part of what seems to be happening, it seems to me is Silicon
0: Valley is going through its typical process of trying to eliminate the middleman, right? I mean, you you see it with like Redfin in real estate. We've certainly seen it uh, in retail with trying to eliminate real estate from the equation in e-commerce. Is it gonna work here? in the IPO price process. I mean, I, I assume you've read Moritz's column about uh, yes. the,
1: the traditional IPO being over. How broadly do you think that can work? Uh, I don't think there's gonna be a huge amount of change. Uh, 20 years ago, uh, Bill Hambrecht with W.R. Hambrecht & Company tried to shake up the IPO market by allowing companies to use auctions, uh, as Google did. And at the time, there was also talk about uh, other companies using an auction, but it never really took off. Uh, It uh, was only a little bit of a a niche uh, where most companies use the traditional method for going public. uh, Why didn't it work? I mean, auctions
0: are entertaining.
1: Uh, I I think one reason that it didn't work is uh, the middlemen. uh, The underwriters didn't want it to work. Mm. Uh, In Google's IPO, they uh, sabotaged the deal by encouraging institutional investors to bid low, and uh, Google wound up getting a a lower price than they could have because uh, the institutional investors followed that guidance and bid low.
0: So, I mean, but I thought that sort of stuff wasn't supposed to work anymore because it's the digital era and everything can be open. You mean the middlemen can still hold their ground at least
1: in in this forum when it comes to the IPO and win just because they say so? Well, that seems to be the case. Indeed, this year, the average first day return uh, from the offer price to the first close has been 25%, which is actually the highest number since uh, the internet bubble 20 years ago. So uh, companies on average are getting considerably less than investors are willing to pay for the stock. And that is why, I mean, I've been going back and forth in messages with
0: Bill Gurley from Benchmark, for example, who has been very vocal in his criticism of how the current system works, that it's too opaque, that a lot of companies should be better off going direct. How important is it whether the Airbnbs of the world, some of these other big uh, startups that we expect to see IPOs from in the next year or two, that they maybe choose a non-traditional route if this is really going to take off?
1: I I think there's a good chance that some of them will. Uh, With smaller companies, uh, they also want analyst coverage from investment banks. And uh, for the smaller companies, if they don't do the traditional IPO mechanism, a lot of Wall Street firms refuse to have their analysts cover the stock. But with a a company like Airbnb, they don't have to worry about that.
0: Yeah, well, I guess once again, in in this forum at least, the bigger guys can call the shots. Jay, thank you. Lots of great insight there. Once again, we are talking IPOs, the future of the IPO here on Fort Knox this week on the 15 year anniversary week of Google's IPO. And now that we've covered what exactly an IPO is, let's talk about why a company would pursue one or not, the good and the bad. Joining me now to help break it down, TechCrunch's Silicon Valley editor Connie Loizos and Quartz editor in chief Kevin Delaney, who covered Google's IPO back in the day with the Wall Street Journal. Guys, welcome. Hi, John. Hi, John. Uh, Connie, it's been a long time. First of all, great to have you. I know. You're at Fort Knox. Yeah. um, uh, We (laughs) we worked together 10 plus years ago. Tell me, I mean, you're you're seeing (laughs) (laughs) you're seeing this process. From the West Coast perspective, you know, you've always had or long had good sources with the VC community. How serious is it this time, this idea of shaking up the IPO process?
2: You know, I I honestly don't know, John. Uh, You know, I I heard you talking to Jay about the direct listing, uh, which, again, Michael Moritz, famous VC, is a big advocate of, as uh, Bill Gurley is. But, um, you know, I, I do wonder if... Investment banking can be disintermediated disintermediated anytime soon. I mean, so we've gotten rid of you know um, uh, booking agents for travel, stockbrokers have sort of gone away. Mm-hmm. but I think when you're dealing with a really big transaction, um, you know. You, you still want somebody whispering in your ear. I think that's why we haven't really seen real estate agents go away as quickly as we thought we would. Yeah. So I'm not sure what's going to happen. Um, to Jay's point, I think there are certain companies that can pull it off, but I think it's a pretty small group. And one of the starting points is that they don't need to raise money. A direct listing is not a fundraising um, event for a company. They're basically letting their employees and early shareholders liquidate their shares, but they're not raising any money themselves, which is sort of a key differentiator.
0: Yeah. Yeah, and Kevin, I still like having a real estate agent. I mean, that's... A- that's a lot of money to mess around with usually yeah. especially you know i lived in silicon valley the houses out there are ridiculous so but you you are also seeing this process you saw the google ipo up close I remember that being wacky, right? Because we had reporters in the Merck newsroom who were trying to participate in the auction so we could explain to the readers Mm -hmm. what it was like. We had never really seen anything like this before. What's the legacy of that day uh, as it relates to today? I think there are a few legacies,
3: and some of them actually have carried on. The idea of doing a Dutch auction never really caught on. And part of it was that Google's experience with it was very mixed. They went in and said, let's have an auction instead of having investment bankers. What happens is you do roadshow, the investment bankers talk to big institutional investors. They try and get them excited about the shares and they come back and they say, okay, we think there's interest at $80 a share, or $100 a share. You know, As Bill Gurley complains, it's a totally opaque process. And what Google wanted to do is like, break that in, out in the open. Let's have people submit bids, tell us what they're willing to pay, and then you know effectively let that uh, decide. The direct listing is an interesting, Child, maybe of the of the auction, in the sense that it's trying to kind of leave it to the market to decide what the IPO price or the first trading uh, price is. Effectively, so so the the legacy is not that the Dutch auction have uh, was a success, and actually not really that uh, non-traditional IPO forms uh, would be. Uh, would be successful or more more common. Kevin, so, in a way, it,
0: yeah. so it seems like employees could benefit from the direct listing because of the lack of a lockup. Yeah. Right? I mean, if you're if you're looking to just get the opportunity to sell some shares and for you know transparency, then that could that part could be good.
3: I think that's true. The other way in which employees benefit, obviously, is you know as Jay Ritter was saying, there's about twenty five percent difference between the offer price and the closing price on the first day. Employees or anyone who's a shareholder who's selling into the IPO actually misses out on that 25%. And there are some employees sometimes who are allowed to sell into these IPOs. And so that's another way in which they benefit from the direct listing. The thing that, that Jay touched on a bit is that is a challenge with the direct listing is that you don't necessarily have the same commitment by the investment banks or Uh, others to to stoke up investor interest in your IPO. So if you're, there's a limitation that Connie just mentioned, like you can't, the company's not raising new money. And then also, you might be a kind of enterprise you might be a great enterprise tech company, but that's not broadly known like Uber or Lyft. And you kind of need Morgan Stanley to go out to its client base and actually try and get them excited about your shares. You you lose that potentially.
0: Connie, what what about that? I mean, part of this direct listing idea, like with the traditional IPO, you're a company, you're raising money. And a lot of these companies, you know, they, they need to raise money because maybe investors won't give them anymore, and they're saying, you know, you're old enough to right. get out of the house and live on your own or, or they, need, they need it for the marketing budget or they need it to hire people. I mean, uh, right, right now we're in this weird time when there are big investors like SoftBank just throwing money at certain companies, right. late stage companies. It's not gonna be like that forever. So is the direct listing really gonna work when a little bit more of this investment money dries up?
2: I think you're absolutely right, and that's also why I'm sort of skeptical. Again, I think certain companies will get through. Kevin was exactly right about Slack. My understanding is that although in Silicon Valley Slack is, of course, very well-known, they had to do a lot of sort of... uh, educating uh, of the shareholder base to make sure that they understood what, the, what they were getting. They also had to just sort of manage everyone's expectations. You don't want everyone to sell their their shares on day one of the listing or the stock is going to tank. so they have to sort of assess how many employees are going to be selling on this day? how many of their institutional investors are going to be selling and what percentage of their holders are they going to be uh, ex- or holdings will they be selling? But to your point, um, yes, there's been a lot of money that have kept these companies um, sort of very well funded. And so they are in a situation, including SoftBank, where, excuse me, Slack, where it didn't have to raise money. But if SoftBank, uh, which I think your viewers probably know is this Japanese conglomerate, has been, you know, investing a hundred billion dollar fund, and it's been talking about a second hundred billion dollar fund, if that second fund doesn't come to fruition, and I do have reason to think, uh, you know, I think the talk in Silicon Valley is, is that money real? Um, this is a This is a A company that's sort of um, very complicated. There's a lot of debt involved. I don't think we really know what's happening, but if that money were to disappear or other sources of money were to disappear, I think it would really change the whole sort of proposition um, and promise of a direct listing.
0: Yeah. Yeah. All right. We are talking this week on Fort Knox about IPOs, the good and the bad, and whether the process is changing. And something we like to do is Get some digits. We're going to do that right now. A few numbers that caught my eye this week when it comes to IPOs. series. what's the first one? $6.4 billion. $6.4 billion. That's how much money was left on the table for 2018 IPOs. That is based on the closing market price on the first day of trading minus the offer price multiplied by the shares offered. Basically what that means is when that price pops from the IPO price the first day, the company isn't getting that money in the increase from where the stock closes. So if they had priced the IPO at the higher price, they would have actually walked away with a bigger haul. And this is one of the arguments that folks like Bill Gurley, who are arguing that the system needs to change, that they make saying, hey, look, there's money being left on the table. But not always, Kevin, because look at Uber.
3: Yeah. You know, well, and the didn't... fact the shares are down, Uber, yeah. is, Uber is down something like 25% since their offer price. And so, yeah, I mean, the... the, the The pop, this pop is like a a creation. It's a a structural, it's it's one of the things that bankers are aiming for. And companies go along with because they believe that it's a good public relations to show that your company is so popular. On the first day, your share price is is up 50%. And for the banks, it's great because they are able to go to their clients and stoke up interest saying like, just buy these shares, they're gonna go up. Uh, You know that, IPOs go up 25% on the first day. You can't beat that kind of return.
0: So let's do a little, Um, thought experiment. I just thought about it. Connie, what if Beyond Meat had done a direct listing? I mean, this is a stock that has gone absolutely nuts since it it went public. Uh, And and in a way, it's like, it's hard to argue that they left a lot of money on the table because looking at the numbers behind the company, how could anybody say, yeah, this should really be above 100 bucks a share? But, I mean, that's where it is now. What do you think would happen if a company like that—that's not necessarily super well known, it's no Google—but they're selling plant-based meat alternatives? If they had done something like a direct listing,
2: I mean, I—I'm I'm as shocked as anybody that Beyond Meat's <laughs> shares took off like they did. So I would that it would not do very well, that it would be sort of overlooked unless they, again, had bankers like, you know, Morgan Goldman sort of talking up their book privately, because these guys do get paid as advisors. So um, it's not, they're not doing the same extent of uh, sort of work that they're doing when they're underwriting underwriting a traditional IPO, but they are sort of reaching out and sort of trying to drum up some some, uh, interest. Um, But I don't think it would have done very well, which, again, sort of underscores why this is sort of limited. But I think, um, you know, sort of related to the IPO topic, the big sort of I think concern for American investors, uh, which you know VCs I think maybe don't care quite as much about, um, is that these companies are staying public so long that all their value mm. um, and appreciation is being sort of you know is accruing to the, the venture investors themselves. I mean, Benchmark was a very early investor in Uber, so of course it did fantastically well from um, the the IPO, and it was selling shares. I'm guessing uh, earlier, you know, it was, it was still a private company, so. Um, I think that's a really, a much bigger issue. I mean, we have far fewer IPOs on the whole than we did say like in 1996. I mean, I think there's maybe half as many.
3: I think that's great. I actually kind of differ on Beyond Meat in that it's a consumer brand. And I think that they have that advantage of actually being something that people run into supermarkets and now uh, in fast food chains and elsewhere. And so it's a little bit different I think than Slack whose, whose kind of exposure every day to people is, is a little bit different. Um, at the same time, uh, you know, I, it's hard to imagine that a direct listing would have produced the sort of stock market run that we've now seen for that company.
0: Yeah. All right, Siri, let's get the next digit. $22.5 million. $22.5 million is the amount of shares Google sold on its first day of trading 15 years ago. And again, it's hard to imagine. Look at them, they're so happy at the NASDAQ. Actually, I don't know if they're physically at the NASDAQ, probably, but, but they set up these little stations in Silicon Valley where you could look like you were on Wall Street, but you weren't really. Do you remember, Kevin? Because you yeah. were covering it, where they actually I was, were? I yeah.
3: I think they were here, if yeah. I remember correctly, uh, because they, they like, were taking flights back and forth and weren't, weren't available.
0: It kind of looks like that room downstairs. Yeah. Yeah. It, it's hard to imagine that this company had a not-so-great, perhaps, uh, IPO, but Facebook, too had some trouble. Yeah. I, I wonder, um, are we heading into an era where there's even more of a stratification between the has and the have-nots, or the knowns and the less-knowns, between the kind of process, Connie, that they take to going public?
2: Um, that's a that's a good question. I'm not really sure, but um, I think what's interesting to note about you know you're, you're talking earlier about the legacy of Google. Um, I don't know if you've touched on this, but the dual stock share structure mm. um, has also been sort of game changing. And I think, Gavin, am I right? Was Gavin, was Google one of the first companies? Yeah, to Google is definitely one of the first, and that
3: is a serious legacy where the founders were able to have control of the company through a much smaller uh, shareholder shareholding of super voting shares.
0: Which is an innovation they Tender. borrowed from the newspaper business, media yeah. companies yeah, exactly. that used to do that all the time yeah. because they need to be able to think long-term in their big, powerful, never-going-to-fail institutions. Boy, we mm-hmm. see how that worked out, all of us. Uh, Kevin, so uh, if the process isn't going to change that much, what do you think happens to this conversation when things cool down
3: yeah. a bit? I think you know we're having this is an unusual IPO season in that there's so many companies that are going public right now. Um, as Connie was saying, that there's been this pent up pent-up supply of potential IPOs because these companies have stayed private unusually long. And so Mm -hmm. I think what we're seeing the moment we're in is it's like the end of the cycle. People see the risk of a recession. The stock market's pretty uh, pretty rich right now. And they're just trying to get in this window, and companies like Palantir and Airbnb will be interesting. Will they actually make this window uh, before things turn turn colder? you know, I don't, I don't know the answer to that. Um, but I, I also believe that there's so much inertia for the current IPO model that I would be surprised if beyond select few names that don't need to raise money, like the Slacks and the Spotifys, that that form uh, catches fire more broadly.
0: Connie, what happens to employees? I remember being uh, in the Valley 15 years ago in my mid-late 20s and had a friend, th- through a friend of a friend who worked for Google. And she did quite well with the IPO. Um, Eventually she stopped working, will never have to work again in her life. Does that still happen? I mean, there were stories back in the day about secretaries, office managers, who would get shares and then a company would IPO and they'd be millionaires. I feel like the way things are structured now, that
2: happens less? It happens less because they're getting rich sooner than that in some cases. So a lot of these companies um, are having these secondary sales. While they're privately held companies, their shares are trading on secondary marketplaces, which are frankly becoming almost as big, if not bigger, than the public share marketplace. So um, they're sort of, you know, a lot of companies will say you can sell maybe 20% of your shares because we want you to be comfortable, but we also want your interests to remain aligned with ours. So it's interesting. We're seeing these Um, pops, but uh, there's sort of these mini pops coming along the way. And I also think that sort of plays into, there's a lot of concern about the housing market in in San Francisco and Silicon Valley more broadly, but I think um, a lot of that money has already sort of been coming in over the last, you know, five years. Uh, So that sort of lessens the impact of the IPO itself, I think.
3: I also think it's our moment now in history where, you know, 15 years ago it was novel that you had Charlie Ayers, the chef at Google who became this massively rich guy and left the company and others uh, like that now there is this tech backlash and I think it's probably less cool and less acceptable to be someone who made a you know a billion dollars on some of at some of these companies like the extent of the wealth given, the national conversation about inequality I think is, is means that people are much less likely to talk about just how rich really? they are than they were fifteen years ago.
0: I think we still love that story though, like the artist at Facebook who like spray paints the wall and does the mural and takes shares instead of cash and ends up making millions. I mean that feels I think, somehow yeah I think there was like a the moment where, was that,
3: where that was like that was the story and people could buy into it, and I think now people are much quieter about. Um, about that sort of good fortune. Huh.
0: Well, I don't know. It seems like people are still chasing it, but perhaps it's going to be hard to change the system. Kevin, Connie, thank you. A lot to think about in IPO land. And for this week, that'll do it for Fort Knox. We'll see you next time. I'm John Fort from CNBC, and this has been Fort Knox, Rich Ideas and Powerful People. Subscribe wherever find podcasts are distributed. Check out the reviews on iTunes. Leave me a note. Also, subscribe to the Fort Knox series on LinkedIn. That's brand new and a great way to keep up with the trends I'm seeing both on this Fort Knox show and in my other work on CNBC. That's also the absolute best way to be in touch with me. Leave a comment on the series. Also, subscribe to the Fort Knox channel on YouTube, F-O-R-T-T-K-N-O-X dot com slash YouTube. Matter of fact, you can go to YouTube now and see video of these conversations. Or you can go to the CNBC apps on Apple TV or Amazon Fire TV, and find Fort Knox in the featured area. Meanwhile, share this, tell a friend, drop me a note on LinkedIn, Facebook, Twitter, YouTube, or fortknox.com. And as always, thank you for lending an ear.